0: On today's episode, we have Dr. Laura Berman, who is the world's leading expert in sex, love, and relationships. She earned two masters and a PhD degree from New York University, and has spent the last several decades helping individuals and couples around the globe love and be loved better. She is a New York Times bestselling author of many books, including her latest, Quantum Love, and she is an award-winning radio host and has her own podcast called The Language of Love. Dr. Berman, thank you so much for being here today.
1: Uh, Thanks for having me. Yes, absolutely. Well,
0: today is Valentine's Day and today is our special love episode. And so we're going to be talking today all about relationships and sex. So super excited to have you here and share your expertise with all of us.
1: (laughs) Great. Well, it's one of my favorite topics.
0: Yes, exactly. Well, and I think for others, too, and I think people tuning in today are, you know, really wanting to, A, either want to connect with their partner on a deeper level and or maybe possibly spice up their sex life. So let's get started. I want to start with just more of the emotional intimacy, and then we'll get to the sexual intimacy. But, you know, for some people, sexual connection comes first. And for others, possibly the emotional connection comes first. So in your opinion, um... You know, is there one that needs to happen before the other, or how can couples emotionally connect more with each other?
1: Well, if we're talking about long-term relationships, um, much less monogamous relationships, then absolutely they both need to be there in order for the satisfaction to be there. And in particular for women, I did a national survey several years ago about what the most you know, looking at what the most sexually satisfied women had in common. And it wasn't so much, you know, the technique or even the orgasms they had that determined their true sexual satisfaction. It was actually the emotional connection and intimacy they felt with the person they were having sex with that most predicted for their satisfaction. So it's a huge, I mean, obviously men care about emotional connection too, but if we're talking about heterosexual relationships, it's sort of um in you know it's kind of like this this uh circle because women especially in longer term relationships are inspired to be sexual when they feel emotional connection and men feel emotional connection when they are you know as a result of their physical sexual connection with someone. That's what right. feeds it. So It's kind of reverse for heterosexual men and women or people more in their masculine, so to speak, versus people more in their feminine. Um, But I do think both need to be there for a sexual relationship to be healthy and long lasting.
0: Absolutely. And so how can people work on that? How can couples connect more with each other on that emotional level? And what, what advice do you have that, um, you know, maybe it's some quick tips, you know, just touching each other as they walk by each other in the kitchen or something like that. But what can kind of create some of that emotional connection?
1: Well, I think it's important because everybody's a little bit different about what what we all want is to feel seen, heard, and delightful. To our partners in our relationship, we want to feel connected with and seen and heard. And everyone's a little bit different in how we experience that, right? Um, right. Have the love languages and all of that. But what I do think is crucial, and I was astounded, uh, this came out maybe a year or a little more than a year or two ago. It was before COVID, so it must have been a while back. But they, were, they found that most couples don't talk more than 15 minutes a week about things other than the logistics of their lives, the repairs, the kids, the soccer practice, school, work. So most of us don't invest. And if we are together, we're both on our laptops or devices. So one of the most transformational things I've, you know, I find, which is very simple, but it's a practice that really builds that emotional connection is to commit to just twice a week, For 15, to, you can start with 15, move to maybe 30 minutes with no technology, no kids, maybe just music, and you're kissing, cuddling, talking. You're not having sex during those times. You're just talking about things, not the logistics of your life. So it could, you know, and a lot of couples are like, well, what the hell do we talk about then? (laughs) (laughs) So you talk about a dream trip you'd still like to take or where you see yourself in five years or what makes you feel loved or, you know, what, what you still want to create in the relationship or how you're feeling about life in general, but you share because sharing and connecting and, um. And exposing yourself, being vulnerable with each other by really having conversation. It doesn't mean you have to go into the belly of your feelings every time. But um, if you're connecting on that level, it definitely fosters emotional intimacy um, and, and a sense of connection. And that, along with really making a concerted effort to look for things to appreciate about your partner because, and, and maybe, you know, I'll have couples commit to giving each other five genuine expressions of appreciation a day because most of our lens, so to speak, that we view our partners through is problem-based. You know, you have a story, your partner is selfish or lazy or distant or whatever, and you're going to find evidence for that wherever you look. But when you set an intention to look for things to be grateful for, even things your partner always does, you know, but that you're still grateful for and you express that, it's really changing what you're looking for. And it starts to shift the energy between the two of you.
0: Hmm, I like that. I'm just gonna sit and pause on that just for a second because what you said I think is very powerful and I want everyone who's listening to also just think about what that would look like in their own relationship.
1: Yeah, it's really powerful. And, you know, if I were to say to you right now, look around the room. I'm going to give you 10 seconds. And I want you to look around the room and find everything orange. And when we come back, I'm going to ask you about it. And then 10 seconds later, after you've looked around and noted everything orange in the room, I say, okay, now tell me everything that's blue in the room. You didn't even see that because you were looking for orange. And that's what we all unconsciously do in our relationships. Oh, interesting. I,
0: yes. I love that. I love that. I think it's a great exercise. <laughs> I love that. So so how important are date nights? I know, you know, we have two kids. They're little. They're, mm. you know, we have, like you said, all those other logistics of life. You know, we have our mortgage to pay and we have all these other things going on. And sometimes it's hard to make the time, you know, uh, and prioritize that. But how important are they? Do Are they really needed? Do we really have to, you know pay the babysitter and go out for six hours once a week, once a month, whatever it is, to connect? Or is there ways we can connect, like you said, on a daily or regular basis by opening up more conversations and being vulnerable with each other? Or are those still really beneficial for a a, a happy, healthy relationship as well?
1: I think it depends on your life. If there is no, if you have 24 hours, you know, if your kids are really small and demanding and by the time they're asleep, you've both been working full-time jobs and you can barely keep your eyes open, you know, then setting that time aside for a weekly date, you don't need to spend a lot of money. You can even do it after the kids are asleep. You just like commit to that once a week where you're going to spend a couple of hours, you know, having a glass of wine on the porch or listening to music or going for a walk or going on a picnic. You can have a babysitting pool with your friends where everybody's kids goes over to one house and you all kind of, you know, rotate taking your date nights during the week. I mean, there are lots of ways to get around the financials of it. And it's not mandatory if there are, if your lifestyle is such where you have opportunities to connect play together, be together without it being about logistics or without it being a play date with your kids, you know, Right. it's really about the two of you. And I think even, you know, I did also research uh, looking at what promotes, you know, that emotional connection in, um, in couples. And what I found is going away even once a year on like a four day or longer solo vacation So, I'm not talking about a family trip. That is not a vacation. I'm talking about the two of you alone, right? That does more for your emotional connection. And you need more than four days because you need a day or two to decompress. Right. Um, But if you do that once a year, it has greater effects even than a weekly date night. So, I would rather you go on a date once a month, spend that 15 minutes twice a week, give each other a lot of appreciation, have a sex date, which we'll get to in the beginning every week. And then once a year, maybe once a month go on a date and once a year go on a trip and you're doing the same thing as if you went on a weekly date night.
0: Wow. I love that. What fascinating research. I love that. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to (laughs) start planning that because I think there's so much pressure on a regular basis to try and keep things up. You know, and I know we're going to get to more uh, of that on the, on the sexual level, like you said, but you know, I think there's just so much, um, you know, cause life just kind of gets in the way. Like you said, like we're both tired, we go to bed early and you know, then, you know, things just kind of go by the wayside. But, um, like you said, if you can intentionally set that time, even once a year and how that, builds just as much, if not maybe more intimacy between you two than going on a weekly date. I, I think that's fascinating. Um, and yeah, because if you think about it, you're, for... you're
1: going out for four to six hours, maybe, if you're lucky, right? And then right. the first couple of hours, you're decompressing. Then you start to kind of engage. And, that, and then by the time you're into it, you go home and you're back yeah. into your craziness. And so it's like barely maintenance. It's much better than nothing. Um yes. But but it is even more powerful when you have an opportunity to really sink into unfettered unstressed connection time with each other and do something fun or adventurous or exploratory with each other you know exactly. in a, a way situation i love that well then how do we
0: how do we communicate with our partner so let's say there's something missing let's say it is we want to say you know to our partner you know, we'd like some more date nights, or um, I, I want to get this this need across. You know, I, I need more affection from you, physical affection, or just whatever the case is. How do we open up those those lines of communication and and get those needs that we have expressed to our partner where they're open to it, and we feel vulnerable vulnerable enough to actually express them?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a process. I think getting clear on what you are looking for, need, want more of, is step one, right? Yes. <laughs> Step two is before you even bring it to your partner, is okay. So I'm looking for more connection time and more romantic gestures, let's say, in my relationship. The next question is, what am I doing or not doing to inspire that? Hmm. Because what I find more often than not is when one partner says, I want more romance or I want more connection, they're just sitting back and expecting their partner to do it or they're bitching and complaining to their partner about a million things every day and the last thing their partner feels is connected and romantic right or they're they're withholding sex from them because they either have no desire or they've been taught you know that there's a tit for tat in sex unfortunately which a lot of people had taught so you know I'm not going to have sex with him until he does xyz so they're with but all of those things are kind of if we're talking about her, her role. in it's always a dance we're doing together, even if you have a story that he or she isn't showing up in the way they should or the way you want them to. So getting clear on what I call your 100 percent, each of you have 100 percent in each scenario, what your 100 percent is, is really important because then you go to your partner and you say, "Okay, I have been noticing that I'm really longing for more romantic connection, more play with you, more quality time with you. And when I thought about it, I realized that I've been feeling really angry with you and complaining to you about a thing, a lot of things, and that probably doesn't do a lot to inspire you to want to spend time with me. So I'm committing to shifting things in me and looking for ways to really appreciate you and play with you on my end. And I'm really hoping that you will join me in that. Hmm.
0: Yes, I like that. I like that because there is that sense of ownership, that sense of uh, intentionality, that sense of responsibility that the person asking for that need also needs to look at what they're doing and what their role is in the relationship as well. Uh, You know, from what I gathered from what you were saying, is that right? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And especially if you are talking about wanting a man to show up more emotionally, romantically connected and you are not, and he has a healthy libido. And you are not having regular sex with him. It is going to be hard for him to gin up that connection. And the other thing I'll say about guys, which is so sweet and sad at the same time, is I can't tell you how many times I have heard from men, you know, she says she wants more romance. I don't know what that means. Mm. I, I bring her flowers, you know, once a week. I tell her I love her. What does she mean I'm not romantic? So we have to get really specific. I've had women, you know, write a list of 20 things that are romantic to them, right? Because one woman could care less about flowers, but if you wash her car, she swoons, right? right? <laughs> so what is romantic to you? And share, if that's what you're wanting, share that. Give him a list of things that really mean, you know, be explicit.
0: Yes, Yes, I do think the details uh, really make a difference too. Um, I'm like that with when I work with, ch- I specialize with children. And so when I tell, ask parents to, you know, give their child even a compliment so they keep continuing in that, be- that positive behavior, mm-hmm. you know, to focus on the behavior they want and they'll just say something, you know, very generic, like great job. <laughs> and the child's wondering, well, what did I do a great job on? What do you want me to do? Or what, you know, was it because you I- sat don't know the- what to do more of. Right, right, right. So same with the couple, you know, like, oh, you know, Uh, I want this, but you know, this is not the, you know, like you said, everyone has a little bit of different and to be as as specific as possible because each person is going to be different in what they deem or, you know, uh, define as romantic. So.
1: Right. And as appreciation, we were talking about appreciation earlier. The way that you coach parents to give appreciation is the same way we should give our partners. It's much different, you know, say thanks, honey, versus thank you so much for taking out the trash. I know you do it every night, but I'm so grateful I don't have to go out in the freezing cold and do it. And it really means a lot to me that you take on that responsibility every day exactly perfect example
0: thank you um that is yeah that's perfect um i think that, that that alone is such a great example and that could be used in so many different ways um you know to to have that specificity attached to it so but you mentioned something i know you have an entire podcast episode about this and i actually really want to listen to it myself to to dive in deeper but um what advice do you have for a couple that has found themselves in a sexless marriage
1: yeah it's it's tough because you know <clears throat> I guess the question, sexless means you're having sex basically, you know, one to three times a year is sort of what's considered sexless. Um, And there is a huge number of couples in this country uh, that are having no sex, haven't had sex for months or years or have it way too rarely. And, you know, is it an issue when both of you are okay with that? Neither one of you have real desire um no it's not necessarily an issue but your relationship the level of emotional intimacy that you're capable of you know without that physical aspect to it is sort of like you know very dear friends and roommates which for many people is enough right especially if both of you are satisfied with that but more often than not one of you does not want a sexless marriage but has either just you know given up and or is sick of being rejected Or, um, you know, is getting it elsewhere, right? And just is giving up on the relationship. So um, in those cases, that's where you see the issues really coming to fore. Because sex is just one part of an overall emotionally intimate connected relationship. But when it's not working, it really takes on a life of its own. And the feelings of rejection and abandonment and disconnect That happen in the person who still wants it, you know, is profound. So I think it's hard, you know, back in the day when we were sort of um, categorizing women's sexual function complaints and how to diagnose them. And, you know, one of the key elements was whatever it is in order for it to be considered as an issue or a quote unquote sexual dysfunction, it had to be something that caused her person or him in the case of a male sexual dysfunction that caused him or her personal distress. Mm. Uh, And so I could, you know, that applies when we're talking about difficulty reaching orgasm or pain or dryness or difficulty getting aroused. But when you're talking about low libido, the individual is not distressed about not wanting sex. They'd rather be gardening or watching Bridgerton or doing something else on their (laughs) to-list. do But- What they are distressed about, if anything, is the impact it's having on the relationship. And so specifically for uneven desire, which is what we're talking about with sexless marriages, um, that is a case where your personal distress really is coming from the impact on the relationship. And so is your motivation to fix the issue. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think a lot of people aren't having sex because of misconceptions that they're supposed to you know, after 28 and after age 28 and or several years of, of a relationship that they're supposed to be, you know, they don't have sex unless they're spontaneously horny. Mm -hmm. And if you're waiting for spontaneous horniness or even an opportunity to have sex, if you have kids, you're going to be waiting for years. And if you have lower desire, you don't have that innate thoughts, fantasies, Physical motivation to be sexual, you have to sort your sexual motivation from a place of wanting to nurture the relationship or connect with your partner in a way that lands or express your love and connection. And what most people say, especially women who have low desire and do this, what I'm saying is that, yeah, sure, I'd rather be doing something else on my to do list or whatever. But once I get started, you know, and I'm in it, I enjoy it. And I think at the end, oh, I should do this more often, but then I just lose my motivation again. So that's why it's so important to commit to that and even to schedule those sex dates on a minimum of once a week. And it feels artificial at first, because once again, we've all been conditioned to think it's supposed to happen spontaneously, but that's just Hollywood. Um, But once you plan it and you know when it's coming, then the one with lower desire is ready for it. And like prepared for it, and you both start to look forward to it. You're extra nice to each other that day. You shave your legs. You you know <laughs> send each other a sexy text. It begins to be something that you know is coming. You can wrap your head around. You can be prepared for, it, and you even start to look forward to, it, especially as you see the positive effects on the rest of the relationship.
0: Okay, I like that. The scheduling, I, I, I've. You know, it's it sounds easy enough, right? <laughs> but then, then it comes to well, what day of the week? You know, is it on? a, I think you mentioned early in the week, maybe a Sunday night or something to kind of kick the week off. Or do you have it a specific doesn't day? matter?
1: It okay. doesn't matter. It can be different every week. It can oh, be okay. Saturday afternoon when your kids are napping. It could right. be. It could be in the morning. I don't. If you're someone who gets exhausted at night, I would not make your sex dates at night. Um. And, uh, I mean, when my kids were young, I would even get a babysitter. I would get a babysitter to come over at 12 in the afternoon, like from 12 to six. And somewhere in there, my husband and I would go out and do something. And then we'd have our sex date before or after. And then, you know, we'd be all set for dinner with the kids by the end of the day. So, that's great. Um, but, you don't, but you don't even need a babysitter um, necessarily to do that. So um, it can be it's, look at your schedules and make it. It's, for some couples, it's going to be the same day and time every week. For other couples, it may be different every week.
0: Okay, I like that. You know, you hear these terms, you know, sex makes things complicated. And then the not having sex makes things complicated. <laughs> right? So should it be that complicated? Or, or can it be just we schedule it, we do it, and we move on? And that will, in itself, create less complication?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of the, sex is complicated when you're not in a relationship because it complicates the dynamics between the two of you and the questions and the attachment. And one of you doesn't want a relationship and the other does. Sex in an existing relationship is not complicated in the same way. It gets complicated when there are issues to discuss or one of you isn't fully satisfied. But you're right, it doesn't have to. and, And when one of you has low desire, it gets super complicated because the one who still wants it you know, won't reach, like the one who doesn't want it won't reach out to cuddle, kiss, or hold the hand of the one who wants it because they may think she's trying to start something and she's <laughs> going to reject it again. And he won't reach out for her because he's anticipating that she'll cringe or reject him. And so all the other trappings of playfulness, connection, hand-holding, flirting, cuddling, go by the wayside because both of you are sort of awkward about it. When you set your sex date, and I often do this with couples I work with, I say, okay, for the foreseeable future, you, they either are having no sex, if they've really been struggling with this, or sex once a week at an appointed time. And the rest of the time, there is no guessing, are we, aren't we, will he, won't he, she, and it's, you're just free to kiss, cuddle, connect, all of it, and it's not ever going to lead to sex. And then that way you're kind of stoking the flames all week until your sex date.
0: Hmm, I like that. I like that. Um, I, I like how you also mentioned, you know, the mismatched libidos because you know I've when I used to do some couples therapy myself before I started focusing more on children. You know, you would hear one of them say, you know, I, I'm good if I don't do it, you know, maybe once or twice a month, and then the other person is saying, well, I I could do it every day, and there's that discrepancy and that pressure almost for the person who has the lower libido to kind of rise up to the person that has the higher libido. You know what I mean? And there's that mismatch.
1: Yeah. You have to, you have to find the happy medium in those cases. And so, you know, one of you might want, I, I was doing this on a show that aired. I think it aired already with Nick Cannon, uh, with a couple where he wanted it five days a week and, you know, she didn't want it at all. And, you know, I said to him, look, you're not going to, we're not going to move to five days a week. We're going to move to one or maybe two days a week if she can, you know, if that feels good to her, but we're going to start with one. So it's really about meeting in the middle um, where she's probably or he, whoever has a lower desire, is going to be having a little more sex than they might be wanting or doing naturally. And the one who wanted more sex is probably going to be having less sex, but is perfectly happy because before they weren't having any sex, you know. So um, what I find is that if you have one to two really good connected sexual encounters, and it doesn't mean that it has to be like a three hour extravaganza. But where you're both into it and present and communicating and enjoying it and, and it's um, connected, then, you know, most people, even if they prefer it five days a week, can take care of themselves the other two, three to four days a week and are perfectly fine. Exactly. Exactly. Now, where should a couple start?
0: So let's say there has been a dry spell. I mean, should they really just, I mean, jump into the the scheduled sex and they should be, like you said, once they get started, they should be good to go? Or should there be you know, some sort of step, like you said, maybe some, um, you know, fun text to each other, some hand holding, maybe some kissing before they jump right back into sex or should, or should they just go for it?
1: (laughs) Well, it depends, right? Like if things have got, if it's been going on a while and things are super awkward, like even thinking about it and you wouldn't, you know, and there feels like a valley between the two of you, then it's probably not realistic to, um, you know, to assume you're just going to easily jump into it. And I'll tell you what kind of helps with that. But for a lot of couples, they've just gone through a dry spell or it's really, you know, kind of fallen off over the past six months, year, whatever, or it's always been, they've had sex regularly, but it's always been a bit of a struggle. Those couples will have an easier time just jumping into it, so to speak. But for those couples who really have that awkwardness, then I still would want them to make those dates. But during those dates, they really are rediscovering each other. So maybe, you know, on the first sex date, the first week, or maybe the first month on their sex dates, they're just giving each other, you know, a naked uh, massage where they aren't focusing on arousal or stimulation where it's not going to lead to sex. And then the next time, you know, they start, Doing a little, you know, they kind of move through the bases. They start doing a little breast or genital stimulation and they kind of work their way up. Um, That's what I find, you know, is really kind of, and sometimes in those cases, it really helps to have a sex therapist or a couples therapist guiding you through the process, especially if there's been a lot of rejections and emotional damage and the stakes feel high and you feel awkward with each other. It helps to have an outsider kind of guide you through a process.
0: Yes, exactly. And I was also going to bring that up, too, if maybe someone one one of the partners or if not both, but one of the partners maybe had some kind of previous uh, sexual trauma from a previous relationship or childhood molestation or just there's something, um, you know, a sexual assault, something like that, which I know can be another topic for a whole nother yeah. episode. But um, but that should also, you know, go see some professional care if there's um, something in the past that is preventing them to having the healthy sexual relationship in the present.
1: Yeah, and I think absolutely. And I think that's a really important point because what I find and it was fascinating to me, it made so much sense when I first kind of saw this pattern. But what would what I saw happening is that, you know, there I would see a lot of women who were <clears throat> molested or abused in childhood, maybe even got or earlier in their adulthood, maybe even got therapy and worked through that and were capable of having a very loving, intimate, fulfilling sexual relationship with someone else. But then when they had, maybe after their second child, when it often happens, or if they had a very difficult birth and they, and they have scarring that causes pain, or as they move into perimenopause or menopause, and they just, either it hurts and they don't want to do it, or they don't want to do it because they don't have the desire, even the propositions and sexual interest of a loved, trusted partner feels too close to home. And so I see a lot of women who had prior somewhat resolved histories of sexual abuse and trauma experience PTSD in the face of their partner's interest when their desire is tanked. Hmm. And so very often it's sort of a secondary layer of healing that's needed in order to move through to a happier sexual place for the two of them. So it doesn't have to be that you've never had therapy before you've never gotten healing before, or that, uh, um, you know, you're somehow broken. It just means that what's going on in the relationship right now is triggering, which is understandable.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And luckily there's, you know, people like yourself and others and, you know, other therapists that are out there and professionals that, that can, that can help, you know, with that. So, um, you know, with all of this, really, you know, just couples intimacy, you know, like I said, there's uh, sex therapists and, and whatnot. So, um, and I know you touched upon this and I, I liked how you talked about the sex dates and how you can kind of lead up to it, you know, where there's certain expectations um, and, and maybe not for others, but what is the secret sauce? You know, how do couples keep their passion alive in a long-term relationship? Like you said, especially if they've been married for, let's say 10 years, they have a couple of children. And how do you, how do you keep that, that passion alive?
1: Yeah, you know, I get asked that every time I speak to a group and, you know, they're saying, how do you spice it up? How do you keep it interesting? Um, It's definitely commitment and maintenance and like committing to doing it on a regular basis. But um, and there are things you can do. Right. Like and I always say to them, you know, I could give you three hundred and sixty five tools, and role plays, and I could have you, you know, tell you to make a fantasy box, which is really fun, where you both write down all the fantasies you'd like to act out together, and you pick one out once a month, and, you know, there's lots of things you can do. I have lots of books about all of that, but in truth, you know, after a year or a year and a half, because maybe some of them you do a few times, the novelty is worn off that, and you'll be back asking for another set of Mm. things to try, right? right? So what I have found is that what we're really looking for when we ask the question you just asked is that we're looking for how to create intensity. Because in the beginning of a relationship, that intensity is natural due to the way our brains are responding to new love. The addiction center of the brain is lit up like crazy And we can't get enough of each other. And the discovery is so exciting. And then once you really know each other and you understand each other and the commitment is there and the dirty socks are on the floor and the kids are screaming, you know, you don't have the same level of excitement. But you can create sexual intensity, both with the flirtations and the butt grabs and the penis taps as you're walking by and, you know, keeping that kind of playful energy between the two of you. But also, if you really are in a place where sex has become a little lackluster, but you have a level of trust and connection between the two of you, you can take it to the next level with, you know, what I call quantum sex. So it's one of the most popular chapters in my book, Quantum Love. Love it. Um, and it shows you how to create a more spiritual um intense physical experience during sex, how to move the energy of the sensations up your body and even circle them between the two of you. And so there's lots of stuff you can play with even using your usual positions and your usual things that create a level of connection and intensity that is just, in fact, better than new love because there's a level of of, of spiritual connection and deep soul connection is part of it that is really profound and satisfying i I like that i'm I'm gonna get your book too by the way i'm gonna
0: <laughs> um because I you know i, I you know because you hear things like like you said, you you mentioned role play um you know maybe possibly that you know to spice things up in the bedroom you know you you put on a wig I've had you know friends even say well i got i got a new wig at the store and we're gonna role play where he's gonna pick me up at a bar and take me home and I'm this new person and you know um, which is, which can be fun, you know, it, that's playful it fun. and yeah. Um, but you know, but I, I know you've talked about this, you know, before in, in, in many different realms, obviously, um, about sex toys. Um, so I just want to take a minute, you know, we're, we're almost done with the episode, but I want to take just a few minutes to talk about sex toys and, you know, the benefits of them, uh, what the benefits are. And if you have a number one sex toy recommendation that every mm-hmm. couple should have.
1: Well, uh, yeah. I mean, I have a line of sex toys. And if you go to my website, um, you can find them. But um, I I think there's definitely a place for them in both spicing it up, you know, like wireless remote control vibrating underwear where, you know, she wears the panties that vibrate and the crotch and he has the remote and you're going to your in-laws or a boring cocktail party and, you know, he can zap you whenever he wants or things like that. You know, there are toys that are more for playing and exploring. Um, there are toys that if a woman wants to, exp- has never experienced a G-spot orgasm, for instance, that are designed for that. And she can figure that out on her own and with the toy and then teach her partner. Um, and then there are toys that are really helpful for reaching orgasm during intercourse. So one that I have that I recommend a lot is one that I call the Estrella. And it's just a very small cylindrical kind of powerful bullet um, that your partner or you can create clitoral stimulation while you're having intercourse. So it, you know, since only 30% of women have orgasms during intercourse, and it's usually because they're having clitoral stimulation at the same time, especially after multiple vaginal childbirths or with hormonal changes women typically need a lot more stimulation in order to get aroused. So it's easier when it's small like that to kind of incorporate, you know, depending on your position, it can fit in between the two of you or, if you know, um, providing that direct stimulation while you're having intercourse. And so, um, but, you know, every, you learn a lot, even if you go on one of those online stores together, you learn a lot about each other. Oh, yeah, I would love that costume. Oh, yeah, I've never tried (laughs) it. I've always wanted to. You know, you learn things about your partner that you never knew before going shopping like that together. Right,
0: exactly. And what is what is a good way if you have a partner that is maybe a little skeptical of sex toys or skeptical of maybe doing something like that? Um, do you, how, how do you get around that, or how can you maybe warm them up to the idea of, of, of spicing up the bedroom in that way?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of men are nervous about them because they feel like. They're going to be replaced, or that they're somehow not good enough, and you need, you know, extra help. And what I try to make clear to them in these situations is what I told what I was talking about already with regard to that research on what the most sexually satisfied women have in common, you know, it's that emotional connection. So, yes, the vibrator may be moving at a speed that no human hands, or penis, or tongue could move, but. It isn't asking her about her day. It isn't staring into her eyes. It isn't emotionally connected to her. And you are the one that she needs in order to do that. And also, I try to help them understand, especially if you are someone who needs that help. Um, You know, a lot of women up to that point have maybe been faking it because they feel bad or they don't want to make him feel bad. And so, you know, I wouldn't necessarily announce that you've been faking it because then you have to like get over the betrayal of that. Sure. That's a whole other conversation. But if you just say whether you've been faking it or not, if you say, look, I am noticing that after these babies or now that I'm hitting 40 or uh, whatever, I am having a harder time getting, you know, getting to orgasm. And I was thinking, I was listening to this podcast and I was thinking, you know, they were saying that if you get a small little toy and I got one, I'll show it to you. I was thinking we could play with it during sex and it might you know, help me get there because what happens as we get older is that our blood flow diminishes there and our hormones start to diminish or change in ways that lower the sensation and make make it harder to get there. Right. Exactly. Um, I love that.
0: I love just, you know, like you said, it just comes with an open conversation, some vulnerability, um, some experimentation really. Um and that scheduled sex, I think that is just a gem of, an, of advice. That and I like how you can mix it up, where it's not every night or every Sunday night. You can mix it up, you said during the day, different days of the week, and. Um, I I just love that. You've given such phenomenal advice. Um, Like I said, I've just, uh, I've loved your work for a very long time and admire what what you do and what you've done and what you're going to continue to do. Um, Will you just share with everyone one more time where they can find your podcast, your books, your sex toys, um, you know, on your website and whatnot and where they can get more information?
1: Yes. Um, So if you go to drlauraberman.com, L-A-U-R-A-B. Uh, You can find links to everything and you can follow me on social media. I'm always putting tips and tools on there, all at Dr. Laura Berman. And the podcast, you can get anywhere where you listen to podcasts. It's called The Language of Love with Dr. Laura Berman. So I do a lot of interviews with experts. I answer questions, talk about all about how to love and be loved better, including improving your sex life.
0: I love it. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Berman, for being here today. Um, I know I learned a lot and I think everyone else who was listening learned a lot too. And I hope everyone has a wonderful Valentine's Day and a more uh, intimate, loving um, relationship and sex life.
1: Yeah. Happy Valentine's Day.
0: Thank you for joining us today. I can't wait to have you back for more. Make sure to subscribe to the Parentologist Podcast so you don't miss an episode. And make sure to tell your friends. This podcast is not intended to be a replacement for therapy. If you or someone you know is in crisis, please call 911.